This message was recorded during a Cornerstone U class given at Cornerstone Church of Knoxville. All right. Good morning. Thanks for coming. Hope everybody got an outline. This is the What About Evil Cornerstone U. This is not the Exploring Cornerstone. If you're looking for that class, just to make sure everybody's aware of that. Here for evil, yeah. Pat came in asking where the evil is. So it's over here. Um, thanks for coming. Thanks for wanting to come early on a Sunday and uh, learn about this, consider this. Um, true confessions, okay? I mean, we're going to start with a confession. You know, class about evil, it's good to start. You know, just get the heart, you know? Um, no, everything that I'm about to share with you is stolen. Just want to go ahead and get that out. Nothing original here. Uh, this book called What About Evil? A Defense of God's Glory, of God's Sovereign Glory by Scott Christensen. You know, I pretty much took his stuff. So, um, if you really want a fuller treatment, um, I'd encourage you to buy this book and read it. You can read through it slowly. Uh, it's really helpful, uh, very good. Um, so I just want to be clear. What you're about to hear, I wish I could do it all. But Scott Christensen, he, he's the man. Um, he's really, he really held my hand and provided a lot of... Um, help for this. And I just encourage you, if this is a topic, I know you're here, so you're interested in it. To, I mean, I know it's thick, but I would say it's a big question. And I think he's, he's taken his time to answer it thoroughly, biblically. Um, and so what I hope is this class will whet your appetite, uh, give you some insights into what he thinks, answer some of your questions that you might have. Um, it'll probably give you a lot more questions. And I think that's where uh, having something like this will serve you and hopefully continue to encourage your faith, right? And so that's why we're here. We want our faith to be encouraged. We want our souls to be satisfied in the Lord. And so, um, but I just wanted to say that at the outset, that that's a, that book is excellent. It's what I'm leaning on. And let me, let me just begin with prayer, and then we will jump in. So Lord, as we begin this, I just feel just my need. Um, I'm sure everyone here feels their need, Lord, just for um, just faith. Uh, Lord, we just need faith. We need help, Lord. We live in a world where evil just seems to be rampant, uh, where evil just, it, it seems to be everywhere, um, whether it's headlines, whether it's personal suffering, whether it's personal hurt and trial, whether it's the diagnosis that we, so, we never wanted to hear off the doctor's lips, Lord, we, we, we face evil in this world. Yet, Lord, I, I pray that, that this would not be a topic that would draw us away from you, but it would actually draw us more and more into who you are and what you've done. Um, and so, Father, I pray that you would do this in our hearts, that your word is what we're going to stand on. And your word is what we're going to look to. Um, and Lord, what, what we want more than anything is for your glory to be made known. And so I pray you'd help me to serve all who come this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So A.W. Tozer says, What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing to us. The problem 
of evil might be the greatest challenge to the Christian faith. Why? Here's the question. Why would an all good and powerful God allow suffering and evil? Can such a God exist? And these are ancient questions that um, continue to be raised today. And answering this problem lies at the very heart of the Bible. And it answers because it reveals the character of God and explains his redemptive purposes. So that's what I hope we get to see is that the, the Bible is not afraid of this topic. The, the Bible is actually all about this topic. At, at its very heart is answering this question of evil. When it comes to the problem of evil, we cannot think God relates to evil in the same way humans do. We tend to humanize God and deify humans. So what that means is we, we like to make God in our image instead of realizing that we are made in the image of God. And so it's important that God, he is a supreme being. He is uniquely distinct from us, a being of which no greater can be conceived. And so the, the pull that we feel in this conversation is that there is a mystery. We don't have all the answers. And sorry, I'm not going to have all the answers for you today. If I said that, then you should leave. You should leave and like, I'm not going to listen to this guy. Um, there is a level of mystery that we have with this conversation of evil. But, but mystery does not mean that God hasn't revealed something to us. So God has given us, Deuteronomy 29, 29 says, the secret things belong to the Lord, but the things he's revealed belong to us and to our children. And so there are things that he's revealed to us that we can know about him and that we can see and understand even with this conversation about evil. Christopher Ash, author, he wrote an excellent commentary on the book of Job. He, he makes this helpful, helpful distinction with the two types of individuals who take up this subject on the problem of evil and suffering. He says it's between the armchair theologian, the guy who's sitting in his armchair just trying to think, think it out. It's intellectual. He's going through all the philosoph um, philosophical arguments, but then you also have, it's a wheelchair theology. It's the one who is in the place of they are actually walking through suffering. So there's one who it's an intellectual curiosity. The other, it's someone who's confronted with real suffering. It's someone who is really facing hard circumstances and looking at it and thinking, where is God in this? And I'm sure all of us in here are in different places with that. And, and what we hope is that the, the, the three classes, you know, will provide a helpful framework for you that you can build your faith on. And so here's, here's the plan for the class. I'll teach this one on um, addressing the question of what is the problem of evil. Next week, Drew's going to teach on uh, the book of Job, so looking at the life of Job. And then the final class, we're going to address questions of both the skeptic and the sufferer. And so there's questions that you're probably going to have today that we will get to, that, that we will get into in the last class, because I want to keep you coming back. Um, but I think today what I, what I wanted to do is, is really get at what is evil and how is this connected to the, how is this at the heart of the Bible? And really, what, is, what does it mean that, that God receives glory, that, that, that evil came into this world and God uses evil not only for our good, but for his glory. How do we make sense of that? So I'm going to say, hey, here's, here's this position. Here's where we're getting this from. We'll look at, and then we'll, we'll, we're going to dive into Scripture. So we'll look at the 
life in the book of Job next week, and then we'll have examples and different questions that we'll look at the final week. Sound good? So let's jump in. What is evil? This is one of the most fundamental questions we must face before addressing the problem of evil. How does one determine if something is evil? On what basis are, we, are you to make that judgment? Here's secular answers to defining good and evil. Good is whatever benefits society. Evil is whatever harms society. Good and evil is a function of just brain chemistry and evolves as humans evolve. Good is whatever makes a person happy. Evil is whatever fails to make a person happy. Good is what promotes psychological stability. Evil is what harms psychological stability. Good and evil are generally subjective evaluations people or societies make. Good and evil are actually illusions. The world is meaningless and absurd. Wouldn't that be great to wake up each morning and think about? Secular answers to determining what is good and evil. Good and evil is determined by societal norms or a particular era. So not only here, you see that all these definitions, it's based on society, it's based on brain chemistry, it's based on feelings, it's based on psychological stability, it's pretty much subjective. So the secular world, they're trying to find something to tether and anchor this question of what is evil to. And then the, the, here's the answers to, secular answers to determining what is good and evil. So good and evil is determined by societal norms or particular era. So maybe what was was good and evil now is different than what was in the Victorian era. So it's kind of cha- it's just changing with culture. You can even think about maybe with the Enlightenment. We've gotten smarter. We've gotten more scientific. We have more knowledge now. So maybe we have a better grasp of what is, what is good now as opposed to those ancient barbarians who had no knowledge. Um, good and evil is determined by genetics. Human evolution, good and evil is determined by each person's subjective opinions. So really, what is good for you, hey, that's fine. Hey, you know, what's good is good for you. It's all relative. Hey, that's all right. That's, I'm good with that. Hey, who am I to judge you? Don't judge me. Good and evil cannot be determined by any standard because the subjective nature of good and evil renders such evaluations meaningless. Thus, good and evil are illusions. Man, aren't you glad that that is not what we're standing on? <laughs> I mean... I just read through that list, and I just think, so what, what do you do? Like, wh- where do you turn? Where's the hope? Where's the answers, really? So really, so the answer for evil is to just look inside myself? Like, that's where we're going to look? I mean, that, this is the crisis of secularization with all its muddiness and uncertainty about meaning, ethics, and values. It has magnified the problem of evil so that even confident believers in God They face unprecedented struggles. We live in an age of doubt, punctuated by brief moments of belief. And as a result, we as a society have more difficulty facing pain and suffering than any culture in history. Moderns have lost the capacity for grappling with evil. I think that is so true. We want to ignore it, or we've become numb to it. And we just don't, we just don't, it doesn't even affect us. Listen to this. Andrew Delanco writes this. A gulf has opened up in our culture between the visibility of evil and the intellectual resources available for coping with it. Never before have images of horror been so widely disseminated and so appalling. I mean, think about it. Just the amount of information 
the amount of pictures, the amount of, of just catastrophe that we see just on a day-to-day basis. And it's just widely disseminated. It is for, and we cannot cope with it. We can't, don't have the intellectual resources to deal with what we are facing. The repertoire of evil has never been richer, yet never have our responses been so weak. We have no language for connecting our inner lives with the horrors that pass before our eyes in the outer world. We have no language for connecting our inner lives with the horrors that pass before our eyes in the outer world. It's just so true. I just think it's, there's this numbingness. There is this, we face all this evil. We see all these tragedies. I mean, even, even this past week, I just, uh, there were so many funerals that people were going to. There's so many deaths. There's so many tragedies. Even these last few weeks, you just look, even within our state, and you just see the evilness of this world. I'm sure maybe you may not even have to go out of your own life. You don't need addition to the evil that this world brings. But the question we have to ask is, so, so what are the answers? Where should we turn? Well, here, the biblical answer. We turn to God's Word. We turn to the Creator who has an answer, who has a solution. So here's what He says. Moral goodness, moral good, represents the obligations morally responsible creatures have to objective commands and principles established and revealed to us by a holy, morally perfect God. So the standard is outside of us, not in us, it's outside of us. So moral evil represents the disregard of moral obligations by morally responsible creatures in violation of a holy God's moral standards. Good and evil are expressed in thoughts, words, and actions. And so it's just helpful because it gives you somewhere to stand. It gives you somewhere to look. For the secular person, there is no standard. There is no standard. There is no le- standard level of good. There is no standard level of evil. In the Bible, it's objective. Praise God. We have somewhere that is objective. Objective commands and principles that are established by the creator of this world and that we as creatures are called to follow. That is that is what the definition of good and evil are. Romans 1 says this, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. We have the truth, but we suppress it. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. His invisible attributes, his eternal power, his divine nature, they've all been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world. But for although they, although they knew God, they didn't honor him as God or give thanks to him. They became futile in their thinking, foolish in their heart. Their, hearts, their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools. They exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man, birds, animals, creeping things. Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die. They, do not, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. For when Gentiles do what, who do not have the law, by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the work of the law is written in their hearts. And while their conscience also bears witness and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse. So, so what, what, the reason for those passages is to say, hey, this, the Lord has given us standards. The Lord has given us good. The Lord has shown us what evil is. He's actually given us truth, even a conscience in our hearts to where this question matters to us. 
I think that shows that there is a created being, a God who has given us the ability to feel and to care about morality. It's how we are different. We have a soul. We've been created in the image of God. And so this is the biblical answer for us to, de- to define and determine good and evil. And so I think the question, guys, is, is like people want to talk about the problem of evil. What I want to talk about is, hey, what is good, right? You have to ask that question. You have to define terms. We live in a day and age where everybody just wants to say things, but we don't, we have different definitions. So you have to realize that. So this is, this is why it matters. You have to start here. You can't assume that what you're talking about, your, your, your starting point for the problem of evil is totally different from the secular in their question. And, and it's a totally different starting point. And so that's why we have to bring biblical answers. We have to define what it means to be good biblically. We have to say what our standard is. So how do we distinguish between moral and natural evil? So moral evil is that which is committed by personal moral creatures and causes pain and suffering for themselves and others. Natural evil refers to adverse conditions in a fallen, cursed world that causes pain and suffering. Natural evil includes natural disasters, accidents, and mishaps due to adverse consequences of the laws of nature, sickness and disease, physical and mental handicaps, physical toil. So there's even different kinds. There's moral evil, right? There's, there's, there's evil done by moral agents who have moral responsibility like us, but then there's also natural, things that happen at living in a fallen world. So, so what is the problem of evil? So here, here we go. Throughout the ages, the notion that an all-powerful and all-good God allows evil to corrupt his good and pristine creation has been regarded as the greatest challenge for Christianity. This follows back even to the 4th century with Epicurus, and even more famously, David Hume, a philosopher in the 18th century. So here's the logical problem. I think this is in your outline. Here's what we're, here's what we're up against. The God of the Bible is all-powerful. The God of the Bible is all-good, so he's, omni, he's omnipotent. He's omnibenevolent. He's all-good. Yet, evil exists. How can there be evil? Therefore, the conclusion is the God of the Bible cannot possibly exist. So how can the God of the Bible, who's all-powerful and he's all-good, how can this good and powerful God, how can there be evil? How, how does this work? And so here, here's some hidden assumptions in this argument. The all-powerful God of the Bible can prevent evil. The all-good, omnibenevolent God of the Bible wants to prevent evil, yet evil exists. So this leads to some preliminary conclusions. Therefore... Either God is not all-powerful, he can't prevent evil, or he's not all-good. He does not want to prevent evil. So this conflict between these two conclusions leads to the same conclusion. Therefore, the God of the Bible cannot possibly exist because the Bible insists that God must be both all-powerful and all-good. So does that make sense? You understand what I'm saying with that? So there's these hidden assumptions behind this question that either God is not all-powerful or he is not all-good. So he cannot prevent evil or he does not want to prevent evil. And the question is, is, are those assumptions true? Is that what Scripture teaches? So in thinking of the, the scope, so thinking about the problem of extensive and senseless evil, some like to think, hey, maybe God could excuse small amounts of evil. Maybe just minor infractions. Hey, these aren't that bad. You know, there's not... 
a lot of evil in the world, but then <laughs> no senseless person would argue that. All you have to do is think about the Holocaust. I mean, that's the Nazis. They just didn't kill 60 or 600 or 6,000 Jews. They killed 6 million. Um, and the horrific atrocities, they just seem completely senseless. What good could come from that? In the 20th century alone, there's been a staggering number of mass murders totaling over 90 million. 20th century, 90 million. And then you just think about the human and sex trafficking. You think about all the over 900,000 abortions that occurred in 2020. I mean, you just, you just think, like, no, we're not, talking, we're not talking about just senseless minor. We're talking about, like, like evil. Like, that's what we're looking at here. That's what we're talking about. That's what we're looking at. So it's, and it's not just the evil that is kind of happening out in the world, outside of us. There's the personal problem of evil. There's the evil that happens. For many people, evil is not a problem of their belief in God, but until tragedy strikes at home, right? So, so it's more when we're in our armchair and we're wrestling with evil, it's not until evil comes close to us and we're put in a wheelchair and we're like, okay, how do I deal with this? How is God, how is he good? If he's good, he's all-powerful, then why am I here? That's, when, that's where it gets personal. And what I love is that even the biblical writers struggle with this. That's what I love about the Bible. The Bible's not absent on these things. The Bible doesn't leave us hanging. The Bible actually, through the intended writers, gives us words. It brings us into the sufferer's heart. It brings us into their prayers. And these aren't just any words. These are God's word. And so that's what I love about the Bible. This question is at the very heart of of it, and it faces us in the most tragic of circumstances. On April 7, 2021, Dr. Robert Leslie was with his wife and two grandchildren enjoying some time together in their home in Rock Hill, South Carolina, when Philip Adams, a former NFL player, came to their home with a gun, and he shot and killed all of Dr. He killed Dr. Leslie, his wife Barbara, and their two grandchildren. And then there were two HVAC repairmen who were there at the time as well. Adams then, he was a former NFL player, he went home, killed himself, took his own life. It was later discovered that he was battling an unusually severe form of CTE, so he had his, his brain, he had a degenerative brain disease that could be found in athletes and others with a history of repeated hits to the head. Walt Alexander, he's a former pastor here, he's at Trinity Grace Church. Jeff Leslie, the son of Robert and Barbara Leslie, and the father of the two children that were killed was a very close friend of Walt's. Walt grew up with Jeff. He, Jeff was in his wedding. So when this tragedy hit, what, what we got to see is a front row seat of a man who was caring for a family who, and, and caring for a friend who not only lost his parents, but lost his two children. And Walt had the task. He had... He was able to be a faithful friend to Jeff, and he was able to be with the family. He was able to weep with them. He was able to care for them. He also was able to try and answer questions and give them counsel. This is when personal evil comes home. This is when personal evil, the problem of evil, enters our homes. And during this time, and as Walt was caring for him, Bill, he had the idea of actually sending them this book as a way to say, hey, if you have questions, turn to here. And you can go and, and try to not answer your questions, but try to help make sense of it and trying to care for this family. And Walt cared for his friend and this family very well. And they wrestled. And then a year later, this is what Jeff wrote. 
It's been a year since our community came face to face with the unbelievable. In the minutes, days, and months since, our family has remained fixed on the eternal hope we have in Christ. The following statement that we shared after the event remains true. It has helped us to guide us deeper into fellowship with one another in love. As C.S. Lewis has said, come further up, come further in. On behalf of the Leslie Alexander and Kuhlbach clans, we would like to address the outpouring of heartbreak, shock, grief, and support from our family, friends, and community. We are truly in the midst of the unimaginable. The losses we are suffering cannot be uttered. While we know there are no answers that will satisfy the question why, we are sure of one thing. We do not grieve as those without hope. Our hope is found in the promise of Jesus Christ, and we are enveloped by the peace that surpasses all understanding. That's faith. That, that, is, that is being able to face, I mean, just horrible tragedy, but also being able to say, this is where we can turn. That's what the Bible provides for us. That is what faith in this word and faith in the person and work of Jesus Christ directs us. That's the only place that we can stand. I love Lamentations. Lamentation 3 says this, I am the man who has seen affliction under the rod of his wrath. He has driven me and brought me into the darkness without any light. He has made my flesh and my skin waste away. He has broken my bones. He has besieged and enveloped me with bitterness and tribulation. He has made me dwell in darkness like the the dead of long ago. He has made my teeth grind on gravel and made me cower in ashes. My soul is bereft of peace. I have forgotten what happiness is. So I, may, so I say my endurance has perished. So has my hope from the Lord. What I love about Lamentations is that it, it gives God's people a place to go in the midst of suffering and be able to, to, to say what their heart feels. And God has given us something to communicate. And so even in the midst of personal tragedy and loss, this is what the question, this is what we face. D.A. Carson says that the truth of the matter is that all we have to do is live long enough and we will suffer. And, as, and this is what Oz Guinness says. He says, as believers, we cannot always know why, but we can always know why we trust God who knows why. As believers, we cannot always know why, but we can always know why we trust God who knows why. We can turn to him. So here, let's confront the problem of evil. The Christian response to the problem of evil is, Noah, is known as theodicy. The word comes from Greek words for God, theos, and justice. A theodicy provides a solution for the problem of evil that justifies God, defending his integrity and exonerating him for, from the charge that he is morally culpable for evil. So Christians have responded to the problem of evil in two basic ways. One is the autonomy of man's free will and is normally associated with Arminianism. The other response is emphasizes the sovereignty and glory of God and is associated with Calvinism. So here's two criteria of faithful theodicy must meet. There must be unique goods. What I mean by that is whatever good God brings about due to evil must be a unique sort of good that otherwise could not ha have come about without the evil it is dependent upon. Does that make sense? So whatever good God brings about due to evil must be a unique sort of good that otherwise could not have come about. So here's an illustration, this idea of compassion. George Mueller, he could have never cared for 10,000 plus orphans unless there existed a crisis of British children in abject poverty that cries out for such compassion. So this, this idea of why are there so many orphans? Why are all these children isolated? Well, the Lord brought, what good could come of this? Well, 
There's a man named George Mueller. If you've never read about George Mueller, you should read about George Mueller. And what you'll find is that God used this man, and he established orphanages, and he brought these children in, and he was able to show them compassion, and he taught them who God is, and he taught them who, didn't, who, who he was, and he cared for them. Another one, weighty goods. So not only unique goods, but weighty goods. The good that comes due to some evil must be weighty and important enough to justify the existence of the evil the good is dependent on. God does not pursue trivial goods out of some weighty and horrendous evil. The good God gets from evil must be significantly greater than the evil itself. Does that make sense? So the good God gets from evil must be significantly greater than the evil itself. So Greg Welty, he's an author, he's a theologian, he says this, Imagine if someone asserted that unless the Holocaust happened, the inventor of his favorite flavor of ice cream would not have existed. This is crazy, right? Like, that, it needs to be weightier than that. Right? And there needs to be something more than just ice cream for the Holocaust. We need, we need something more than that. So there has to be some weighty good, some weighty reason that comes from this. And, and, and this is where I think we get into the rub. Okay, so what, what is it? With all this that's happened, what is it that's better? What is it that evil, that, that, that all this evil that we're seeing, how can, what good could come from it? What weighty good? What unique good? And that's where you have to... With this question, this is not just a philosophical argument. People like to go the way of philosophy. You can do that. You can make arguments in that. But I think as Christians, we, this argument has to be tethered to Scripture. It has to be tethered not just to, well, here, look at this passage. Well, look at this passage. You know, these unique little passages. Hey, look, Joseph. Hey, what they meant for evil, God intended for good. Hey, there you go. All right, let evil come because good's going to come. All right. No, like that's true, yes, and we'll talk about that, but we're not just looking for one or two verses. We're actually looking at the entire story of Scripture, the whole Bible. It is at the heart of it. It is heart, at the heart of the redemptive story of Scripture. So the one true story, in order to make sense of the Bible's theodicy, we must understand the importance of storytelling. The Bible shows how evil is written into the broad story God tells. So what I love is that God when the fall happened, when sin entered the world and all these things were taking place, he didn't just stand and decide to give a lecture. He didn't just stand and say, okay, here, let me tell you everything that's going to happen and give you all these reasons. No, what began was the story of redemption. What began is this history of redemption that we now have that God is saying, hey, watch me. Watch what's going to come. Watch what's going to take place. And as people, we love a good story. We love to see stories come. We love to see, and and so with that, there are these elements of a story that are connected with this conversation. Flannery O'Connor says, a people is known not by its statements or its statistics, but by the stories it tells. And guys, we have a better story. So when we talk about the problem of evil, we don't need to give statistics. We don't just need to give facts. We don't, we need to give our story. We need to give the story that we have in Scripture. Yes, we need to make a defense. And yes, there's a place for apologetics. And yes, there's all these things that we'll talk about in the last class. And we'll talk about, hey, how can God be sovereign? But then he also gives us this, this, this will that we can make decisions and that we are then held accountable for. But then he's overall, you know, we'll get into that. And we'll get, but, but we got to see this. This is what I love about Scott Christensen. He says, God isn't just about the greater good. He's about his glory. He's about the greater good tethered to his glory. And that's what we see in Scripture. That's what we see in this unfolding picture of God's story found in Christ. So stories help us make sense of the world that we live in. 
There's a conflict resolution pattern. Every good story has a poignant conflict demanding a compelling resolution. How is this going to be fixed? Where is this going to go? And so there's this U-shape. If you go to your last page, there's there's a picture. I could not get this one picture on your page because I'm just horrible with Microsoft Word. But if you go to the last page, there's there's a picture. There should be. There's a U and a J. All right. Typically, with stories, it's a U. You have this U pattern. You have creation. You have the fall. So we have this problem. And then you have paradise restored. So you have the fall comes. And then you have up back to creation. You have redemption. So you have kind of here's where we are. Oh, there's a fall. Something's bad. Christ comes and it's restored. It's this U-shape idea. And so comedy or tragedy, stories tend to be either comedy, good ending, or tragedy, tragic ending. The story always has a hero. He faces the conflict, overcomes it. So I, just, I, I gave you this just to say, hey, here's, here's the backstory. Here's the exposition, the rising action, climax, falling action, the denouement. I mean, these are, this is the story of Scripture. And so I'm not going to be able to go through this, but I wanted you to see the exposition, the creation and the fall, the rising action, the movement toward redemption, the climax, the incarnation, death, and resurrection of the Redeemer, the falling action, the consummation of the Redeemer's kingdom. This is the story that this theodicy is a part of. So let's go to the greater glory theodicy. So the ancient church affirmed a theodicy called O Felix Culpa, which translates as fortunate fall. So a fourth century hymn reads, O assuredly necessary sin of Adam, which has been blotted out by the death of Christ, O fortunate fall, which has merited such and so great a redeemer. So do you get this idea, O fortunate fall? So they're actually seeing the fall is fortunate. The fall is not tragic. The fall is fortunate. Why? How could the fall and the entrance of sin be fortunate? And so what, what you begin to see, the greater glory theodicy is, the fall, and what we see in the biblical storyline is the fall and then the, the bringing in of sin, the bringing in of death, the bringing in of all these things that created a conflict, which we're going to read about and see about, that will lead to the redemption, the coming of Christ, and it will actually bring about glory, for, greater glory for God, a greater good for his people. Only the sun gets to qualify to be the center of our solar system. All other planets must orbit around the sun in deference to its glory. So I think this is important. This is why we need to remember this isn't about just our good. This is about God's glory, okay? This is, so the greater good, the odyssey, which says, hey, God did all this because it was going to be better for me. That's very human. That's very we-focused, some, some theologians would say it's, it's kind of like putting God on top of some paganism. It's kind of like, hey, man is still at the center here. Hey, God did this so we can have a better, fun, more enjoyable life. It's all about us. No, the greater good, the Odyssey, but also it's for his glory. So yes, our good and his glory are connected. So the problem of evil, how we address it is, well, there was a greater good that God brought about that brought him more glory. So only the sun gets to qualify to be at the center of our solar system. All other planets can't. They're too minuscule in way to occupy the center of the gravity. The solar system would fly apart without the sun at its center. Likewise, no other creature could possibly displace the majestic creator as the center of all his glory. His weightiness is unmatched. The absolute supremacy and perfection of his being indicate that he is the greatest good with not even the remotest contender. 
So it's all about the glory of God. James Hamilton says, For human beings, self-worship is the worst sin. For God, it is the epitome of his righteousness. So this idea that this greater glory, this greater good, this evil has entered the world, not only because God was able to bring about something more, something greater, but he was also to bring more glory to, glory to his name. So here's the shape of the argument. God's ultimate purpose is freely creating the world is to supremely magnify the riches of his glory to his image-bearing creatures. God's glory is supremely magnified in the atoning work of Christ, which is the sole means of accomplishing redemption for human beings. Redemption is unnecessary unless human beings have fallen into sin. Therefore, the fall of humanity is necessary to God's ultimate purpose in creating the world. So here's the support for the argument. God has no need to create anything. He doesn't. He does so out of his own sovereign freedom. So scripture indicates he created the world to display his glory. So you even have to ask the question like, why did God create this world? You have to bring God into the picture at the very outset. We don't try to make this argument and then tag God on at the end. No, we begin with, why is this world created? What is the purpose? Well, it was God created it for his own, to display his glory. To the Ephesians 1 talks about that he did all these things for the praise of his glorious grace. So it's all about him. Romans 11, 33 through 36 says, Oh, the depths of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgment, inscrutable his ways, for from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever and ever. So all we need to do is ask this question then, in the face of evil, where has God most magnified his glory? When Revelation 5 looks at the vast scope of history's culminating storyline, the focus is upon the lion of the tribe of Judah, the lamb who was slain, who purchased for God a people from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. Christ alone is the one who is able to achieve what is necessary for redemption. So here's the conditions of Eden. They point to God orchestrating a plan of redemption, the tree with a forbidden fruit, the divine testing of Adam and Eve, the permission of the serpent to enter the garden, the vulnerability of Adam and Eve to succumb the serpent's deception, Adam and Eve's fragile wills, so all these things are in place. God is putting all these things into place purposefully because he is saying that there's going to be a better good. There's going to be more good that is going to come because of the world that I created, the fall that's going to happen, and the evil that is going to enter the world. So then that comes to this, this picture, this U in a verse, this J picture of the storyline of Scripture. The greater glory, the greater good storyline is it doesn't just get back to creation. It's actually better. It's actually, there's more glory. The new, the paradise restored, it's going to be more glorious because of what's been overcome. We're not going to be, deserve to be there. But God made a way through his son for us to be there. And so as we face evil, as we face sin, as we face all that's happened in this world, what we're seeing and recognizing is, is that God dealt with this in the most magnificent way, through sending his son to destroy sin, to conquer evil. There is hope in him and the world that we have to come it's not just going to be like Eden. It's going to be better. Heaven is going to be so much better. And there's going to be complete righteousness with Christ. And so as we face evil, as we look at it and think about what's the problem? Well, the problem is sin. The problem is we have sinned against the holy God. How has God dealt with that? Through his son. And why did he do all that? For his glory. That's why he did it. It's because he would receive more glory and we would receive good. 
The fall is not an intrinsic necessity, but a conditional necessity. If God has determined that supremely magnifying his glory to his image-bearing creatures is his freely chosen plan for the creation of the universe, then he had no other course of action to fulfill that purpose than through the incarnation, life, death, resurrection, ascension, and glorious return of the Son to establish his kingdom. So, the fall is not an intrinsic necessity, but a conditional necessity, because God had determined that he was going to supremely magnify his glory to his image bearers, and this is what he had planned from the very beginning. It was not from the very beginning. And this is what we're going to look at. This is where, so now this is kind of this idea, this theodicy of, okay, here's the evil, here's what scripture has to say, here's, 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 the, here, here's the, um, the truth behind it, here's the reason, here's God's glory. Okay, now let's ask questions about it. And that's what Drew will talk about with Job and what I'll talk about in the last class. But here's the framework. Here's the big picture, which I think is so important for us. So let me pray. So Lord, thanks for this morning. Thanks for your word. Thank you for just revealing to us your will. Thank you, Lord, that you have, you have dealt with the greatest problem, the greatest evil, the, the thing which we could not deal with ourselves, the thing that this world could never deal with, Lord, you did through your son. And I pray that that as we think about the problem of evil, as we think about these questions, as we think about things that have happened in our own life, I pray that we, would, that we would see your heart, that we would see your wisdom, that we would see your power, that you are an all-powerful God, that you are an all-good and wise God, and yes, that you brought sin into this world, that you, that you brought through your image bearers this sin so that you might send your son to rescue us and bring yourself glory because you love us. And so help us to be confident in your word. Help us to be confident in what you have revealed so we can look to you, trust you, treasure you, and enjoy you. In Jesus' name, amen. You've been listening to a Cornerstone U class given at Cornerstone Church of Knoxville. Cornerstone U exists to have our minds renewed by the word of God, to see who God is, and to live in light of his word and gospel. To find out more about previous Cornerstone U classes, visit us on the web at www.cornerstonechurchofknoxville.com forward slash cornerstone dash you.